0: We will turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 5. We're actually going to be looking at chapters 5 and 6 today. It's a pretty big chunk of text, but this is, I think it's appropriate for us to look at them together as we see this idea that God is transcendent, that He is above us, He is other than us, but yet He is with us. And so before we go to the text, Let's go to him in prayer, ask for his help with it. Lord Jesus, as we come to this text, that you we pray that you would guide us through it. Um, again, many times we read these stories from your word and from these history texts, and we wonder how could they possibly apply to us today in a, a different time and a different world. So remind us that your Word is transcendent, that it transcends time and cultures, and it speaks to everyone, it commands everyone, it is holy for all, and we can trust it today just as the saints did then. So Lord, teach us from your Word, guide us to the truth, it's in your name we pray, amen. Amen. So from this text, as I was reading it and I began thinking about how I could tie this to something that we're more familiar with, I guess, I began to think of this uh, story that I read as a kid called The Epic of Gilgamesh, and you guys have maybe heard of that before. It's kind of a, a Middle Eastern story uh, that has very has a lot of similarities to the, the Noah and the flood uh, story. Except for there's this whole other part of Gilgamesh that doesn't get talked about, where he's a hero and he travels around and he kills monsters, and he's got a good friend. That then they travel around together and they get into problems with the gods. And I mean, it's kind of a neat story. It's a, it's more of like a poem actually. Well, he finds this man in the second part that tells him about this great flood. And this flood, in this flood story, this man says that he was one of the only survivors of the flood. Well, he and his family were the only survivors of the flood. And as you read it, it sounds very much like the Bible's account of Noah's flood. Some have even claimed that Moses must have copied this text, or that the writer of Genesis uh, copied this text, because they don't believe that Moses wrote Genesis. Well, whatever the case, I mean, we obviously know that's not true. We uh, We see a different account here of how the gods in this epic of Gilgamesh behave versus the god of the Bible. In the flood account, this man, again, he survives the flood, and he's got a, a big name that I really can't pronounce, so I'm just going to call him the man. And he made a sacrifice to the gods for his deliverance. Well, the story then says that the gods were famished and that they swarmed around the food In order to eat it, they were so tired after the flood that they needed this man, their follower, to sustain them, to feed them. Do we ever find that in the biblical narrative? Do we ever find a God needing man in order to work his ways on the earth? Do we ever find God dependent upon man in order to do anything? So in today's text, we'll see God at his most powerful, and as his power is put on display in the entire nation of the Philistines, we'll see that. The Philistines will get an opportunity to see the God of Israel, and that he is one that needs no assistance from his followers, and he is able to handle himself just fine. I think it's easy for us to forget that sometimes, as we walk through this earth and this life, We forget that God was here forever before us, and that he'll be here forever after us. And like the Philistines, I think we easily forget that God is self-sufficient. He's able to take care of himself. He is above the needs of the creation. He is transcendent. And so in this text today, we're going to see that God, even in the midst of this strange land of strange gods in Philistia, is able to be glorified. We'll look at this in three main ideas. God is self-sufficient, God conquers his enemy, and God restores his people. So with that, I'll read the text. You can remain seated. This is quite a chunk. And so I want you to pay attention to the way that God does, again, as we read from Psalm 115 this morning. He does as he pleases, but yet he loves his people and he restores his people. So starting with 1 Samuel chapter 5, verse 1. When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it to the house of Dagon and set it beside Dagon. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But then they rose the early the next morning, and behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all, and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw the things, how things were, they said, The ark of God of Israel must remain, must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon, our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Let the God, or let the ark of God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of God to, of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against that city. Causing a very great panic, and he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out. So they brought it around the ark. So they have brought around the ark of God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent it therefore, and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, "Send away the ark of God of Israel. Let it return to its own place." that it may not kill us and our people. For there is a deathly panic going throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what we shall send Tell us with what we shall send it to its place. And they said, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn, does not turn away from you. They said, What is the guilt offering that we shall offer him? They answered, Five golden tumors and five golden mice. According to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for the same plague was on all of you and all of your lords so they must make images so you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage your land and give glory to the god of Israel perhaps he will lighten his hand from off of you and your gods and your land why should you harden your hearts as the as the Egyptians and pharaoh hardened their hearts after he had dealt severely with them did they not send the people away and they and they departed Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows, on which there has never come a yoke, and yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home, away from them. And take the ark of the Lord, and place it on the cart, and put the box at its side, the figures of gold, which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off, and let it go away, and watch. If it goes on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it shall be then it sh- then it is he who has done us great harm, but if not, then we shall know that it is not by his hand that it has struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. The men did so and took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and put them their calves in, at home. And they took the ark of the Lord in the cart and the box of the golden mice and the images of their tumours. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right or the left. And the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Bethshemesh. Now the people of Bethshemesh were reaping their wheat, harvest in the valley, and when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua at Bethshemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there, and they split up the wood of the cart, and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and, and the box that was beside it and which were the golden figures, and set them upon a great stone. And the men of Bethshemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. These are the golden tumors that the Philistine return returned as a guilt offering to the Lord, one for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Eshkelon, one for Gath, and one for Ekron. And the golden mice, according to the number of the cities of the Philistines, belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone besides which they set the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth And he struck some of the men of Beth because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck seventy men of them, and the people mourned, because the Lord had struck them with a great blow. Then the men of Beth said, Who? is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God, and to whom shall we go up away from us? So they sent messengers of the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim and said, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill, and they consecrated his son Eleazar to take charge of the ark of the Lord." Amen. This is God's Word. So first, look at this idea that that God is self-sufficient. The Philistines, they worshipped a pantheon of gods. They worshipped as many gods as the other Canaanite peoples worshipped, you know, Baals and Asheroths and Dagon was another god that they worshipped. And so Dagon was featured in this particular temple as the chief god. It was... It was called the, the house of Dagon in the in the text here. And so the, the Philistines brought the Ark of the Lord into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. Why did they do that? Well they were interested in adding the Hebrew god to their pantheon. This is typically what they would do, is they would go out and conquer people, they would take their god, add it to their group of gods, but they wanted to give him his proper place, a subject. Of Dagon. They put him at Dagon's side. We read later that the Hebrews, or that the Philistines knew of the Hebrew God. They at least respected him. You know, they, they talk about what happened in Egypt. They at least respected what the Hebrew God was capable of. However, this is a victory to them. Symbolized a victory over God, over the God of the Hebrews. So they wanted to make sure that this was put on display in the temple. When you walk into the temple, you're going to see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord down beside Dagon, the true God, and this symbolizes our victory over that people. So, they walk in the next morning, and Dagon is on the ground, face down. This giant, probably a big old, it wasn't like this little like cup-shaped thing on the table. It was a big idol, maybe made of stone or wood or something. And it's on the ground. How does that happen? This large stone, just they don't just fall on the ground on their own. Something had to push it over. Something had to push it onto the ground. In this case, it was the God of creation. The one true God. Why? To show that he will not be compared to any other God. Because there are no other gods he will not share a seat with anyone and to drive this point home they set up Dagon again which couldn't have been an easy thing you can kind of imagine these priests getting their god back to the back to where it's supposed to be i only to find him on the on the floor again the next morning with his head off and his hands off why again to show that the one true god does not share a stage And neither does he have to be set up by his followers. He doesn't have to be put on any kind of pedestal. He doesn't need to be because he does not share a stage. He does not need anything or anyone. Turn with me to Isaiah 46. This is a great parallel passage to this passage here in 1 Samuel. Isaiah 46 We're going to look at the first seven verses. Keep your finger there, because we're going to look at the the next few verses as well. Isaiah 46. And this passage is concerning the gods of Babylon, but very similar idea here. Bel bows down, Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are borne as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me and before your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age, I am he, And to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made and will bear and will carry and will save. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver on the scales, hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god, then they fall down and worship I was angry with my people. I profaned, went went too far, sorry. They lift it up on their shoulders. They carry it. They set it in its place and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. The pagan cries out to a God that is incapable of answering him. They cry out to a God who cannot do anything about any of their problems. Why? Because it's no God at all. It's literally capable of being knocked over and not setting itself back up right again because it's just made of wood or silver or gold or whatever. Because its followers have to set it back up. Our God does not need his followers. Our God is completely, entirely independent of his followers. That should scare us a little bit. And not in a run hide and be afraid kind of scared. But in a woe we worship an awesome God, kind of scared. Our God does as he pleases. He is completely independent of us. The gods that we set up Whatever they are, whatever the idols of our hearts are, are powerless compared to the true God of Scripture. This goes to the pagan who only sets up false idols and rejects the true God, exchanging him for a lie. This goes for the believer who has to daily check his or her own desire for power. We daily have to check that at the door Because we know that anything that we set up is nothing compared to our God. And that is the one great thing about worshiping together as his people today. We come together, we read about, we pray to, we sing about a God who is utterly transcendent and holy. Who is independent of all of his creatures, of every one of us who worship him. Yet, he loves us anyway. And that's why we sing. I mean, look at Isaiah, continue to look at Isaiah 46, 8 through 11. Remember this. Remember this that the, the gods that they create can do nothing. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. I, for I am a God. I am God. There is no other. I am God. There is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from far country, I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. This is a challenge for us, from the prophet, to remember all that comes to pass has been purposed, By our God in heaven. He is the ruler of all things. He even calls pagan rulers to do his bidding. You know, it says this: he's going to call this bird of prey from the east. This is talking about the Persian king. He's coming in to save you guys. Because I am God. I have purposed it according to my will. And again, though he be transcendent, he delivers his people. Verses 12 and 13 of Isaiah 46. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. This is a great reminder to us who are the transgressors, who are stubborn of heart. That's all of us. This is good that God remembers his people. And so next, God conquers his enemies. We read in chapter 6 that, at the very beginning of chapter 6, or sorry, verse 6 of chapter 5, the hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod. It's a pretty terrifying reality that the hand of the Creator is heavy against you. The people there were afflicted with tumors. And the land was ravaged by mice, we read later. Some researchers think that this may have been like the the bubonic plague. I don't think it's necessary that we have to know what was going on. Again, God is independent. He does as he pleases. For whatever reason, he had mice ravage their land, and they had to suffer with tumors. We don't really know what that was. just must have been really bad. But the people of Ashdod eventually figure out that this must be the ark of the Lord that's causing this to happen. So what did they do? They sent it to a neighboring city, very neighborly of them. And the same pattern continued again in Gath. It continued in Ekron. These Philistine cities began to be afflicted with the same problems and all of the territories around, tumors, mice, all over the place. God is systematically working his way through the nation of Philistia, wrecking the people and their land, showing his supremacy over and against the gods and people of this pagan nation. So what is their solution? Well, they go to the clergy. They ask for answers because, you know, the clergy always has the answers, right? Well, what did the clergy say? Send it back. But not empty-handed... Make offerings of gold. And not just any kind of offering, but golden tumors and mice to match their affliction. This has just always fascinated me. I wonder what a golden tumor looks like. I don't really know what an actual tumor looks like, so I can only imagine. I, I don't know what they did, if they dipped it in gold or if they made tumors or I have no idea what was going on there. But So they make these golden mice and these golden tumors. I guess, who knows. But anyway, they loaded up their boxes with mice and tumors made of gold, one for each of the Philistine cities that had been wrecked by God, the Philistine lords that had been wrecked by God. And next they make a brand new cart, and they take two milk cows that had calves, and they attach a yoke to them, something that had never been attached to them before. So kind of get this picture. A milk cow is supposed to stay in the barn, take care of their calves, give milk to the people. Milk was a valuable commodity back then. Why? Because it was sustenance. It was nutrition for the people. If they didn't have anything else, they could drink milk, and that was good. So take these two cows that have never been out of the barn before, take them away from their babies, put a yoke on them like they were like some kind of work cows, And then attach this brand new cart that you've made. Load up the cart with tumors and mice and the ark and send it on its way. Really odd kind of story, but that's what happened. That was the priest's idea. And the idea here is these cows should not by any means want to go anywhere. They should stand there or either fight their way out of the yokes so that they can get out of it. You know, a 2,000-pound cow, it decides it doesn't want something on its back. Takes it off its back. And so they should not go anywhere. They should just stand there. You have to love the priest's reasoning here. First, send it back because we don't want to be stupid like the Egyptians were, right? We don't want to be dumb like the Egyptians. I mean, we know better than them. We're not going to harden our hearts. Of course, they know better. Second, this is how we can discern if it was God or not. Well, if they go back, then this is obviously God of Israel. His hand is upon us. And if not, it's only a coincidence because only pagans believe in coincidence. Well, what happens? The, go- the cows make a straight line for Israel, not varying at all. It says they don't go to the left or the right. They go straight for Israel. These two cows with babies back in the barn, milk cows, never been yoked before, New cart, mice and tumors, and the ark of God go straight back to Israel. with the Philistines chasing after them the whole way. You kind of, it's just an interesting little picture here that you can picture. Uh, scripture does that a lot for us. And they must have been wondering the whole time, these Philistines that are running after this cart, what is going on here? Well, what is going on here? How should we interpret this? Well, for me, it represents a few things. First, the grace of God in showing himself to the Philistines. How did he do that? Well, the Philistine priest said, if the cows go back to Israel, we could know that this is the God of Israel. Well, he showed himself to be real. This is not something that he had to do for them. And yet they would still be, they would still be held accountable for not bowing the knee to him. But he did that to them anyway. We know that this didn't cause a revival among the Philistines. We know that the Philistines did not become a nation for the Lord after this point. Why? Well, again, humans, in their fallen condition suppress the truth. Consider our own world. How does the unbeliever respond to similar events in our own world. to a disease, famine, destruction. How do they focus on these things? They focus on the pain. They cast stones at their creator for causing destruction. They chalk it up to coincidence, which is just another jab at the creator. They don't see the grace of God that shows himself. They don't see the grace of God in the healing hand of their lord that not everyone is wiped out the fact that many of them are spared death is an act of mercy but they don't see it they see the pain and they want to throw rocks at their creator what do we see let us see the lord in all things yes he's in the tumors and the mice but he's also in the fact that people recovered that their land was healed so second, we, I want us to see here that there are no innocent people. We need to understand that. The people of Philistia were idolaters. Their sins were, were due the wrath of God. Something that he intended to do through the conquest of his people, but his people failed and did not conquer them. So again, this doesn't need, this, this, this tells us that he doesn't need anything or anyone to accomplish his will. He judged them on his own. In one fell swoop, he cast down the idols of the Philistines. He delivered justice to the people. And he showed them his goodness by removing the plague from them. It's pretty incredible. He is a God that deserves our worship. And we deserve his wrath. But he doesn't give it to us. He doesn't give us what we deserve. And that brings us to the last point that he restores his people. And so first I want to deal with verse 19 of chapter 6. I think it stands out in this passage like a sore thumb because we want the Philistines to deserve death and get it and we want Israel to deserve life and get it and we want everything to be tied up nice and neat and be like, yeah, this is a good story. The good guys live, the bad guys die, we like it. However, that's not what happens these men of Bechem 70 of them are struck down because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. So what's going on with that? Again, let's remember that no one deserves anything but the wrath of God. Back in Numbers chapter 4, if you want to turn there, be my guest. We're not going to read from that, but God instructed Moses and Aaron to appoint this one family, the Kohathites, to deal with the Ark directly, to keep it safe, to deal with its safekeeping, to cover it with all these different color fabrics and goat skins and seal skins and all these different things. And the Kohathites only were were given the, the blessing, as it were, to look upon the Ark and to deal with it when it was moved from place to place. No one else was given that authority or given that permission. The scriptures just straight up say in Numbers 4, If anyone but these people gaze upon the ark of the Lord, they shall die. No one else was to look upon it. This is not like a glance, like if you just happen to see it out of the corner of your eye, you just drop dead. That's not what's going on here. But the word here is to inspect it, to literally gaze upon it. Why? Why would the Lord have something like this? Because it's holy. It's different. The ark represented what? His very presence. It wasn't him. Again, he's not the ark. But for the people of God, this represented his presence. And he is so holy that no one could come into his presence without dying. That's why they had priests. The priests once a year went into the Holy of Holies and offered a sacrifice for all the people. The ark was kept safe. It was kept secret because it was so holy, only this one group of people that the Lord saw fit to accommodate the people of Israel and say they can touch it, but no one else can. And so these people gazed upon it and they died. Why did these men deserve to die? Though we may not like it, our God is not tame, he is not to be trifled with, and his laws are to be followed to absolute perfection. Any veering to the right or the left from his prescribed word deserves what? Death. So, why are we all not dead? Look at verses 13 and 15. I love this, 13 through 15. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth and stopped there. A great stone was there. They split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it in which the golden figures, and set them upon a great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrifices on that day to the Lord. Why did they rejoice when they saw the ark coming over the hill there at Beth Shemesh? Because the Lord was coming back to Israel. These sacrificed cows, and they destroyed this perfectly good cart, Why did they do that? Because their worship of their God involved sacrifice. Because they had no other way for atonement. There was no remission of sins without the shedding of blood. They had to sacrifice these animals in order to worship their God. But the blood of animals wasn't enough. But that's all they had. And so for us, why do we rejoice? Because the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, has come to his people. He has come to save his people from their sins. And he is now at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And hear this. What happened to the last God that sat at the right hand of God the Father Almighty? Got through on the ground. Why isn't he, the Son, cast down On the ground. Why isn't he destroyed just like Dagon? Because the son is God. He deserves to be there. At the right hand of the father. He is the creator. He is the one that smoked down Dagon. And the Philistines. And came over the hill there at Beth Shemesh. And was rejoiced over. He is today, yesterday, and tomorrow, and forever. We worship the one who deserves our praise and adoration. And we worship the one who was the final Sacrifice for an idol-gazing, sinful, tumor-ridden people like ourselves. We are a people who are eat up with sin, yet He loves us anyway, and He has reconciled us to God. So how do we respond? We worship Him. And so let us worship our God as He intends. Let us remove our ideas of who He should be and worship him for who he is, a God who does as he pleases, and it pleases him to send his son, very God, a very God, to die for us his people. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord Jesus, we are in awe of your mercy and your grace to us, a people who are just like these Philistines, who deserve every bit of your wrath, yet you do not give it to us. Even more so, you gave us yourself. You gave us your righteousness that we might have eternal life, that we might live with you forever. And so, Lord, let us worship you. Help us to cast down our idols that we might worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.